These are people that you're going to have a relationship with in some way or another. They're coming in as new partners. They're coming in as new employees. They are former partners, but still in, uh, you know, have money in the company. They're investors. These are people that you're going to have some sort of relationship with going forward. And you want to make sure that everybody's needs are getting met and that you try to figure out up front so you don't have headaches and hassles and disputes later on. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. So today's a solo cast, and um, I want to talk about some things that came up uh, uh, were triggered by a conversation or two I had recently with clients, um, and it's you know sort of going to get into a combination of structuring business partnership deals um, uh, or structuring uh, when you when you acquire another firm and you bring in people who want to. Um, uh, be involved, you know, in the management. Let's say you have a founders class and employees, and now these new people you're bringing in. So it's going to get into some structuring stuff, and it's also just going to get into some uh, negotiating things, and also sort of what's uh, appropriate or the factors to uh, decide on uh, what's appropriate to give and not give in certain situations. Um, so one client I was speaking to um, is uh, in the wealth management space and uh, they, uh, you know, manage a lot of money and they're, and they're thinking about doing an acquisition. And, um, and, you know, the other team, which brings a lot to the table, they're smaller, but their revenues are good. And they bring another aspect of uh, uh, in the space that, um, that will benefit uh, this client in an area that they don't, uh, you know, that they don't do. Again, I, you know, I need to be careful. I, I don't want to give any confidences. So it's just a, it's just a particular segment of the, of the market gives them access to um, additional set of services and potentially additional clients that they don't have now. Um, and, um, you know, and, and it'll bring in another, let's say, uh, uh, add about 30% of revenue to their bottom line, maybe 40. Um, so it's a significant, you know, deal for them. And some of the questions are, okay, they currently have a capital structure that uh, has a founder's class of equity. And that founder's class of equity has certain rights. Um, it has non-dilutive rights, which you always have to be, let's talk about that for a second there. Um, a lot of people want non-dilution. Sometimes investors want non-dilution. And in many situations, I'm actually not a fan of, uh, uh, of having uh, non-dilutive rights. You've got to be careful because any kind of non-dilute can hamstring your ability to do deals later, right? Because if you need more equity, et cetera, the pool that's dilutive is smaller because you have certain people that are non-dilutive and it may or may not be fair. But in this case, and, and we've definitely done it this way, where there's a founder's class of equity that has some level of non-dilutive equity for, for being the founders, for taking the risk, for creating the platform, for doing all that stuff. And then there's a pool of equity that's available for the um, uh, additional people that they're going to bring in through onboarding, you know, hiring or acquisition. And, um, and you know, and, 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 it's, and that's the majority of the equity, but there is this piece of non-dilutive that the founders have. 
Okay, so now you have a situation where there's a, it's not a small um, hire or even a small tuck-in kind of acquisition, but it's a significant deal that represents a good portion, you know, in this case, like I said, maybe 30, 40% of revenue uh, and profit, and uh, and they bring this other aspect. So um, if I'm representing the, the, the team that's coming in, right, I'm going to want to say, okay, I know I'm in a minority position if we just do things sort of straight meaning that um, when I say straight, I mean, where let's say, you know, we just divide equity by relative percentage of, you know, of profit or revenue or EBITDA or whatever other multiple. Um, but I say, wait a second, that's going to be, if I'm in the minority position, that's going to be put me in a position where I effectively don't have any say. And especially if I've been running my own company and have had total say, that might be difficult to swallow in, in kind of a deal negotiation. Right. So but but at the same time, the founders of the bigger company of the acquirer are going to say, well, wait a second. You know, uh, we're the ones that found this thing. You're coming into our platform. Uh, how much, you know, say or rights do you want to have? So the first, you know, you, you always have this decision on voting, control, management, participation and say. Um, and it's not uncommon. And, and, you know, in this case, uh, we spoke to the client about, you know, they've got, uh, I think it's three people on basically their uh, uh, executive team and management. And uh, they're bringing in uh, a multiple person team. Um, but there's, you know, there's one bigger main owner and it's, it wouldn't be unreasonable. And again, uh, I'm not providing any particular legal advice to anybody else's situation. It is case by case, but depending upon the level of uh, what they're bringing to the table, it wouldn't be unusual potentially to add one person at that level to the management team. So they, they, they become one of four. They, they still can get outvoted, but at least they have a seat at the table. They have a say, they have a level of transparency, you know, into things. So that's one of the factors that comes up. The other thing that happened to be the case in this, uh, in 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 uh, in actually, there's a couple of situations I'm sort of combining here because uh, uh, to illustrate several points and also not to have it be, uh, you know, identifiable to anybody. Not that you, know, you can probably figure out who it is. Anybody's gonna be able to figure out who it is. But again, I have attorney-client privilege, so I'm always careful. So um, you know, the other thing that comes up uh, sometimes is, well, what are the rights, the relative rights of the different classes of equity? Because because there might be um, uh, things like, um, well, so we talked about voting. Sometimes there's preferential voting where, where the, uh, the founders get uh, multiple votes and even though other people get to vote, or sometimes there's voting and non-voting. So does the incoming people get a uh, you know, voting class of equity? And let me make a distinction here because I talked about adding somebody to the management team. Depending upon how the entity's set up, for example, if it's an LLC, it could be managed by its members, meaning everybody has a vote, or it could be managed by managers. And then being added to the board of managers gives you some say over whatever um, decision-making has been set forth in the operating agreement and the LLC agreement for that entity that has been delegated to management. But there's still a series of decisions that are, be, are, are on a membership level either by contract in the operating agreement or, um, or LLC agreement, or if it's a corporation in the shareholders agreement. And also in many states, there are a handful of decisions that uh, members or shareholders, owners uh, have a right to, uh, like for example, on merger or sale often, or dissolution under state law. 
So there's two levels of voting often. Uh, if you're not a member-managed LLC, if you're a corporation or if you're a manager-managed LLC, uh, there's two levels of voting and control decisions to be made. And do the new people participate in management? And then if they um, if they don't, do they? what level do they participate in at the member or shareholder level in terms of having votes, decision, no votes, are there uh, preferential voting rights for certain classes? So those things need to be taken into account. And then are there differing economic rights, right? Sometimes the, prefer- the preferential treatment of founders' equity has to do with voting and control, but sometimes there are also um, preferential economic rights where there's a certain return or a percent that comes off the top before the, uh, the profit um, distribution is divided amongst others. So do they come in at a different level? Uh, or do they come in, you know, sort of as a as a founding, you know, class because they're bringing enough to the table? So these are the kind of decisions that you know you've got to make, and some of it is um, really corporate structuring and what is possible. Uh, and and in large part, I mean, there's some exceptions, but the truth is, it's mostly governed by contract. And outside of, uh, for example, those things that shareholders uh, or members, you know, at the ownership level have to vote, be able to vote on by state law or maybe have veto rights or or sometimes they have what's uh, um, what uh, rights to force uh, to be bought out. But there's a limited scope of of what's governed by law. Most of the rest of it is just governed by contract. So you can do almost anything you want. So the question is, what is, uh, can you negotiate? What is, um, what do other people do? Not that that should automatically govern what you're going to do, but it, you know, sort of what standard in the industry, what are the expectations, what are the options? Um, so that's, you know, one of the things we certainly help clients think through. And then there's the, the, you know, the negotiation, the relative value that people think they, they bring, you know, should they come into the founders class when they're not founders? Well, you know, in a lot of cases I say, no, listen, somebody who's not a founder. Um, there's a difference between founding a company and joining one that's existing. You know, the risk level is lower, the systems are there, et cetera. But, in one of the cases that I'm thinking of for a client, uh, remember, they're buying another existing company. So the, the management of that entity are founders. They're founders of their own business. So they did take that risk. They did do all the things that the founders of the acquiring company did in their company, and that's part of what's being bought in. So they want to be valued for that. So there's an argument that you know one or more of them might uh, belong in the founders class. But part of it is the relative value that's bring, being brought, not only in terms of, let's say, revenue, EBITDA, profits, et cetera, but in terms of sort of maybe uh, scope of services uh, and, um, you know, in future value that, that could be added to the table and expertise and that, those kind of things. So those all have to be weighed. And listen, let's face it. You know, part of the issue here is so far we've been lo- largely talking about structuring and thinking through it logically and those things are important, but there's always going to be a human factor, right? There's always going to be an ego factor. And, you know, getting somebody who's a founder of a separate entity to come in and, uh, and give up their rights of control, their rights, uh, you know, so there's different levels. So one, they, they're probably going to give up their rights of control if they're a smaller company merging or being acquired by a larger one, because nobody in the large company is going to let them control decision-making. Uh, so one, they've got to get past that hump psychologically. Second of all is the right to at least have a say, to have a vote, to participate. And 
whereas you might say, well, if they can get outvoted, what's the difference? For, for a lot of people, it makes a big difference, right? Because there's a difference not even having a seat at the table versus having a seat at the table, being able to give your input, try to influence your partners, uh, and also have that transparency and full uh, visibility into at least what's going on than not having it at all, even if you can ultimately be outvoted. And then there's another piece where even if you don't have um, that right to be, you know, to to um, uh, control decisions because you because you're going to be outvoted, well, you know, maybe there's situations where you want, in specific limited circumstances, the right to uh, have some sort of veto right or say. So, you know, in another situation where I'm advising, you know, somewhat recently, we have a situation where there's a couple of retiring partners who are still going to own equity in the firm. The firm's not um, in a position uh, or desirous of, of buying them out totally because they're deploying capital for growth. So they're getting partially bought out. They're still going to have an economic interest in the firm. And the question is, what decisions should they continue to have say in and or control over? Well, let's take an easy class of decisions in that case, which is um, decisions that because they're no longer involved, right, they don't necessarily have voting control over, but that would adversely affect them to the detriment of them, but to the benefit of the others. So, for example, if I am an active owner in a company uh, along with a couple other people, and there were a couple of retired partners, well, it might be in my interest to give myself and, and the other active partners a raise, a bonus, a uh, bigger expense account, things like that. But obviously, that's going to reduce the money that comes to the bottom line that will be available to be distributed to the retired partners. And they're not there working to participate in the increased uh, compensation or bonus or uh, expense accounts. So those are things that a retiring partner uh, you know, would legitimately want to limit in terms of the calculation of what comes to them. But then what happens with other decisions where there are investments made where they don't particularly benefit uh, the active owners, but they do reduce the amount available for distribution. So it might be things like acquiring another company or expanding to a new office or hiring more people. And the active people might want to do that. And the retired people might want to say, well, I understand how that could help the company grow in the long run, but I need you know, my distributions now because that's what I'm living on. So, you, you know, those are all of the kind of things you end up negotiating in these voting and control and decision-making rights in various scenarios, whether it's when you have partners, um, you know, who are not active anymore, but are still owners, uh, or you're bringing in new people through an acquisition or key people, high-level hires. And by the way, similar conversations come up. I mean, I've got another couple of situations where we have investors uh, and what control rights should they have? They have a minority ownership interest. Um, and what is that set of what we normally call extraordinary transactions or extraordinary actions? Uh, you know, so buying the company, selling the company, maybe taking on loans of, above a certain amount or making capital investments above a certain amount or, you know, any committing to certain liabilities above a certain amount. You know, who should have control over those types of decisions? So these are all the things you have to work through when you're doing uh, deals, either bringing in an investor, uh, doing an acquisition, tuck in key strategic hire who's getting equity or having partners uh, retire. And these are all situations, for example, that we're advising on or have advised on and, you know, and, and we do it regularly, but they happen to be situations we've been handling over the last couple of months. So, 
you know, a lot of this is nuanced uh, and, uh, you know, it's why you want to uh, get advice from people that, you know, you have experience with that could be, uh, you know, tax implications as well to some of these kind of transactions. Um, and it, what you really want to do is think through the legal structuring, think through the tax implications. Um, but then also, obviously, you want to think through the personal, interpersonal. Uh, these are people that you're going to have a relationship with in some way or another. They're coming in as new partners. They're coming in as new employees. They are former partners, but still in, uh, you know, have money in the company. They're, they're investors. These are people that you're going to have some sort of relationship with going forward. And you want to make sure that everybody's needs are getting met and that you try to figure out up front so you don't have headaches and hassles and disputes later on. And you want to take into account uh, personalities, needs, and what is in the best interest of the company. And sometimes those are challenging uh, negotiations, it's challenging uh, things to structure. Um, you know, but of course, um, getting uh, the right advice is, is part of what helps uh, with that. And also, you know, listen, staying staying calm and trying to think about it objectively. And, um, you know, like uh, I'll give you an example in the case of where, where we're structuring for the retiring partners. Well, they're going to be other partners retiring in the future. So whatever we figure out now for this first set of retiring partners um, will affect some of the people who uh, are on the other side of the table, so to speak, uh, today, because, you know, two, three, five years from now, it may be them uh, that is the retiring partner. And they're going to need to live with um, the implications of the structure that's put in place for retiring partners, um, you know, right now, which doesn't affect them, but it will affect them in the future. Um, So, you know, that's something to take into account as well. You want to try to do something that is in the best interest of the company and everybody on sort of a, you know, a a neutral basis, which is by, which is uh, uh, why, by the way, when we do these things in uh, shareholders agreements, operating agreements, et cetera, when companies are starting, it's often easier because we don't know who they're going to affect. I mean, sometimes we have a situation where there's a senior person and some junior people, and we sort of know, and we're anticipating in the agreement that they're going to phase out in the next three to five years, and we know it's going to affect them. But ver- but you know, but very often um, we have people who go into business together and. Yes, they may have some differing ages, whatever, but there's no guarantee in terms of who's the one who want to retire first or, you know, will get um, become disabled or certainly will die. I mean, you know, anybody could get hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow. So in those situations, we don't really know for sure who it's going to affect. We might be able to, you know, take odds on who it's more likely. Um and it's often easier to come to these, you know, these decisions up front and structure up front for this stuff because, um, you know, we don't know who it's going to impact. Whereas if we have a particular situation and, and sometimes it's like that, I mean, if you're doing an acquisition, right, you're not going to, I mean, you could have planned in your capital structure. And sometimes we will try to do that uh, for companies that know they're going to do acquisitions, but you're still going to end up with a negotiation with the other side. And while I believe in creating models and holding to them the best you can, and trying to do deals that aren't, you know, all over the map in five different structures. Um, there are times when, like in this one example, um, where it's a significant enough deal for the company, you know, where you're going to uh, want to make some concessions and or negotiate certain, you know, rights because of the significance of the deal to the company. So you can't predetermine it and you're going to have to address a lot of these issues. So those are just some of the things that have come up in recent, uh, you know, uh, uh, deal structuring and negotiating and uh, and strategic thought that we work with with clients. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's um, uh, you know, one of the things that 
my intention of this podcast is, uh, is for people to start getting familiar with these kind of things, getting familiar with the kind of uh, at least questions to ask, decisions you need to make, factors that you should be taking into account, and all the different types of deals that come up so that when it comes to your time to do these, you know, you are steps ahead, hopefully. Uh, and listen, obviously, we'd love to help you if we can in any way. Uh, and, you know, and you're getting to know us through this podcast. But frankly, uh, you know, my goal is to give value and information so that when you get to that next time, whether you work with us, you work with anybody else, you've been able to sort of, you've heard these issues, they're not new to you, you've been able to think through them, um, and you're thinking through them further in advance than you may otherwise. So hopefully uh, this was helpful. These are some of the things that in real life, several of my clients are, are thinking about now, doing now, we're helping them with um, So I appreciate your time, uh, listeners. So thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor. Other than that, the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.